Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. This morning, but we're not that far in in Genesis yet, so we decided not to do that. I want to play a little game with you guys this morning, a little trivia, so I'm going to need some audience participation um, in this little trivia game. And so here's the, th- this is a game about famous inventors. So I'm going to yell out a famous inventor, and what I want you guys to do is to tell me what you think they invented, okay? So we're going to need some audience participation. So, so here's the first one on the list, Nikola Tesla. Generator. AC. Who said AC? Yeah, AC. He's the one who invented the alternating current. Basically, we have electricity today because of Nikola Tesla. Okay, number two, Archimedes. Math people. Numbers? Well, that's kind of like it, numbers. Yeah. Uh, Basically, he calculated the area of the arc of a parabola and gave a remarkably accurate approximation of pi. Don't you feel better now? Okay, here's an easier one. Thomas Edison. Light bulb, what else? The what? Phonograph. Some of our kids are like, what's a phonograph? It's a record player. Um, pitch, motion picture camera. What we have today a lot, Thomas Edison. Okay, what about Alexander Graham Bell? Telephone. He also invented the metal detector. I don't know if you know that. And he was one of the founding members of the National Geographic Society back in 1888. Okay, here's a name I'm sure you're going to recognize. Jerry Hall Lemelson. Come on now. Don't you know who Jerry Hall Limelson is? Okay, he invented the cordless phone, the fax machine, the VCR, and the camcorder. So, pretty, pretty impressive guy there. What about Ben Franklin? The $100 bill. Yes, he invented the $100 bill. Aren't we thankful for that? <laughs> Lightning rod, bifocals, um, odometer for carriages. He's actually the one that invented the catheter. So, um, you can thank Benjamin Franklin for that. So, these are some of the greatest minds that have ever lived that have invented things that we just enjoy in our culture today. And think about the mastery behind those that have left a legacy by inventing things. But there's someone who stands behind all of that, and we looked at it last week. It's the ultimate inventor himself, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the Lord. Think about for a moment the issue of DNA. Now, I was going to try to I was going to try to research DNA, and, and I went to a website, and I can only read like about a half of it until I got really confused. It's very complex. Think about the intricacies of DNA. Think about the intricacies of the human eye. Think about our ability as humans to create poetry, to write languages, to do math, to create music. There's something very unique about what it means to be a human being. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Last week, we started our sermon series in the book of Genesis. We're calling it Creation, Curse, Covenant. Creation, Curse, Covenant. And as we saw last week, as we started the foundation, that God created the entire universe with his authoritative word. 
It was all centered upon the word of God. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded. He called. He named. Everything was centered upon the authoritative word of God. And as we looked last week, one of the things that we saw was that he created light first. And we asked, why was light created first? And we we went to the New Testament book of John and we realized that Jesus is the light of the world. And so God was setting forth a prototype of how the the, the universe was in darkness and chaos and, and God created light just like our lives are in darkness and chaos without Jesus. And he comes as the light of the world through his death, his burial, and resurrection. And from the the opening pages of the Bible, we saw that God, the sovereign God, the creator God is front and center. He's the self-existent, glorious God that does all things in his majesty and his power, and he does all things in his sovereignty. And we kind of finished up on day six, but we hadn't gotten to the pinnacle of God's creation, the creation of human beings. So what I want us to do this morning is to read the rest of Genesis chapter, 20, uh, chapter 1, go into chapter 2, the first three verses, because I think it's a unit, and what I want to do is I want to I try to attempt to answer four questions that emerge from this text, especially related to the creation of human beings. So let's read together Genesis 1.26. It's where we, we left off last week. And by the way, as I'm studying Genesis and preparing these messages, there's so much in Genesis just in the opening pages. It's just, it's just so amazing what God has put in just the opening pages of the Bible. So let's read together Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day, into chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Four questions, four issues emerge from this text that I want to attempt to answer this morning. And so here's the first issue, and it should have jumped up on the page when you started reading it. Up to this point, on these days of creation, what is God saying? Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. And then in chapter, or chapter 1, verse 26, how does the language change? Let us make man. It switches from let there be to let us. And and so we should be arrested by this change and wonder why the change in wording. So here's the first question. What exactly is the us referring to? When God says let us make man in our image, what's he referring to? Well, there's been a lot of views over the history of the world, the history of, uh, of the text here. One of them is that God's talking to his angels. He's talking to his angels and saying, let's make man in our image. And we know that's not true because angels are separate than, than humans. Some people think he's talking to the heavens and the earth. 
Let us make man in our image. There's a lot of weird descriptions of what people believe it means, but here's, I'll lay my cards on the table. Here's what I think it means. And I think you can look at this from Genesis to Revelation and build a case. I think he's referring to the Trinity here. Let us make man in our own image. There's a mystery in the Trinity. Now, if you try to look up the word Trinity in your Bible, you're not going to find it. If you use a concordance, the word Trinity is not in your Bible. But the truth of the Trinity is all through the Scriptures. And so the Trinity is this bedrock truth that is essentially foundational to Christianity. The bedrock truth, if you get the Trinity wrong, you get everything else wrong. Every false religion and every cult basically gets the Trinity wrong and they become heretical. So what exactly is the Trinity? Well, I can very easily express it as one God existing in three distinct persons. Now, it's, it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around, but let me give you three bedrock truths that you have to have with the Trinity. Now, if I were to have a three-legged stool up here and I were to take one of the legs out, what would happen? The stool would collapse. It wouldn't be complete. So all three of these tenets, all three of these beliefs have to be there in order for the Trinity to be the Trinity. If you take one out, you cease to have an orthodox or traditional view of the Trinity. So here are the three big teachings of the Trinity. So, so when God here says, let us make man in our image, he's talking about the Trinity. Here's truth number one. There is one God. There's one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. Now, when we've gone to India over the past few years, we've seen millions of gods. You see all these temples, all these gods, all these different Hindu gods. And so as Christians, we believe there is one God. He's one in essence, one in being. There's one, we worship one God. So that's truth number one, one God. But here's the mystery. Here's the second truth. He exists in three distinct persons. Three distinct persons. Who are these persons? Well, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are the three persons of the Trinity. And these three persons are distinct. So the Father is not the same person as Jesus. And Jesus is not the same person as the Holy Spirit. They're distinct persons. But these three persons all share the same oneness as being God. Now, try to wrap your minds around that. You won't. It's one of those things we have to receive by faith. So God is one in essence three indistinct persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But here's the third tenet. All three of these persons are co-equal and co-eternal. And what I mean by that is that the Father has always existed. Jesus has always existed. The Holy Spirit has always existed. They, they never were created. They've always been in existence. So they're co-eternal, but they're also co-equal in the sense that there's not this hierarchy where the Father's on top, and then Jesus is next, and then you have the red-stepped stepchild of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that we never talk about. They're all equal. Now, they have different functions, but in their, in their being, in their personhood, they are equal. So one God, in essence, in substance, three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. If you have all three of these out of balance, you cease to have the Trinity. So I believe that when Moses shifts the language here, from let there be, let there be, and then God says, let us make man in our own image, I think he's talking about what we would call an intra-Trinitarian dialogue. In the sense that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are talking among themselves about how they're going to create man in their image. Let us make man 
in our image. And so that wording is meant to arrest us in our steps, to stop, and, and, and we're reading, let there, let there, let there, let us. Whoa, this is different. It's different because we're talking about humans. Humans are set apart from the rest of God's creation. They are the pinnacle of God's creation. Now let's look at the second question. First question, what does the let us mean? Here's the second question. It's a very foundational, fundamental question. It affects how you view life, your worldview. Here's the second question. What does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? What does it mean to be created in God's image? Does it mean that we somehow look like God physically? We know God doesn't have a body. He's spirit. Here's the traditional view, and I agree with this. It's the idea that humans are created with that capacity, other than animals or any other part of creation, to have the, the mental and the relational and the emotional and the spiritual ability to relate to God in a unique way. So we can think, we can write, we can articulate, uh, we can have that spiritual relationship with God that sets us apart from animals. We have a soul. We'll talk a little bit about that next week when we see the creation of Adam. So to be created in the image and likeness of God means that we are separate from the animals. We have this ability to relate to God in our souls, to spiritually have a relationship with Him. We can think, we can create, we can articulate, we, we, can, we can relate to God in that way. But... I think there's something even greater that the text leads us to. Here's the issue with the image and likeness of God. The Bible really doesn't define it for us. It tells us what the result is. It tells us what the consequence or what the result of being created in the image of God is. And if you look at the original Hebrew, when it says, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion, really what it's saying there is so that they may have dominion. So here's what it means to be created in the image of God. It means that we are, as humans, the royal representative of God on earth to display his glory to the world. We are a royal representative. In other words, we, Adam was a, it was a king in the image of God to rule over the earth. Now, I want you to keep that image in your mind, king, to rule over the earth. Adam is the first king, because there's a second Adam, isn't there? Jesus, who's the king. Now, why do I get this kingly imagery? This text doesn't say anything about king. If you go back and you study your Hebrew, the word image and likeness is, also, is, is often related to a king or a son. Adam being the son of God, Adam being a king son. Now, if you go to Psalm 8, it'll be up on your screen. David helps us fill in the gaps. He gives us the kingly imagery of what it means to be created in the image of God. Psalm 8, verses 4 through 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And listen to the wording here. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Does that sound kingly? You've crowned him. With glory and honor, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the pass of the sea. So in essence, when Adam was created, he was to be a servant king. He was to serve the creation, to rule over the creation as God's representative on earth as a servant king. It's very important that we catch this because the second Adam, Jesus, is what? A servant king 
that came to represent the glory of God. And what the first Adam failed to do as king, the second Adam came to do as king. So embedded in the, the, the language here is this idea that, that we as humans are to be God's representatives on earth to reflect his holiness and his glory to a watching world, to serve as servant kings. Now, we have to also understand that even after the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, the image of God was not destroyed. Even after the fall, when they took the, the forbidden fruit and God pronounced a curse on the ground and all that good stuff that we see in Genesis chapter 3, the image of God is still intact. I don't have time to show that to you, but if you go back to Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, God gives a prohibition against killing another human being because they're still created in the image and likeness of God. But what I want to show you from this is that from the very opening pages of Scripture, the kingdom of God is present. It's not explicit in the language, but the kingdom of God is present. Now, what is the kingdom of God? You see the storyline from Genesis to Revelation, and if you come on Wednesday nights, we flesh this out in a little bit more detail, but from Genesis to Revelation, it's the story of the kingdom. And what's the kingdom of God? There's three things in the kingdom of God. You have God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Do we see that in Genesis? God's people. Who are God's people? Adam and Eve. Are they in God's place? The Garden of Eden. Are they under God's rule and God's blessing? Yes, for a very short time. What happens in chapter 3? Everything goes south. They're kicked out of God's place. And they're no longer under God's blessing. They've rebelled. So the kingdom of God is this whole idea of God's people in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. Now think about Abraham. When God called forth Abraham, he called forth God's people, the Israelites, to live where? In God's place. Where was that? The promised land under his rule and his blessing. And then what happened if you trace the storyline of the Bible at Exodus? The people are in bondage. Are they in God's place? No, they're in bondage. Are they under God's blessing? No, they're under somebody else's rule. And so Exodus is this whole idea of moving God's people out of the place they're not supposed to be in, in bondage, moving them into the place they're supposed to be in, the promised land, so they can be under his rule and his blessing. So what happened? when they get under God's rule and God's blessing in God's place. Under David, you have the pinnacle, right? You've got the, you, you, under Solomon, you've got the temple built. So you've got God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. But what happens? They disobey and they disobey. And what happens? They get sent into exile. 70 years in Babylonian exile. So the people get kicked out. God's people get kicked out of God's place because they did not want to live under God's rule and God's blessing and they weren't acting like God's people. And so at the end of the Old Testament, you have 400 years of silence because God's people and God's place did not want to live under God's rule and God's blessing. So what happens? John the Baptist announces that there's a new king coming, the ultimate servant king, the King Jesus who's going to announce, I'm creating God's people to live in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. As a matter of fact, do you remember the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth when he came to earth? His first message. What's his first message? In Mark 1, 14 through 15, listen to the words of Jesus. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus is preaching the gospel. And what is the gospel? Here it is. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The first words out of Jesus' mouth is repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom is coming. 
So, are we God's people? Yes. Are we living in God's place? Yes, but not yet. Where are we now? We're pilgrims, we're sojourns, we're, we're not of this world. Are we under God's rule and God's blessing? That's the goal of living under the kingdom of God, is his people living under his rule and his blessing. But what is God doing? At the end of the Bible, there's a new creation, right? What started in Genesis. God's rule, God's kingdom, God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and God's blessing. How does the Bible end? In the new heaven and new earth. Do we have God's people? Yes. All people redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Are they in God's place? Yes. The new heavens and the new earth. Are they under God's rule and God's blessing? Yes, perfectly. And so in the meantime, the question is, how is this theme of kingdom go throughout the Bible? So from the very beginning pages, we see that God has established a kingdom. And the goal of the kingdom is to be God's people in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. And as we see, that whole issue tends to, to tank until Jesus comes and fulfills the ultimate role of the servant king that Adam failed. We'll see that in a few weeks. So the first issue, what does the let us? Trinity. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? It means we can relate to God spiritually with the soul and also means that we're to be servant kings who display his glory to the earth and be God's people uh, and God's place under God's blessing. But here's the third issue this morning, and I think I need to address this because there's a lot of confusion in our world. Here's Here's the third question. Why is there gender and sexual distinction between humans and creation, and how does that affect our worldview today? Do you think our culture is confused over gender? Notice the wording there in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Notice what it says, male and female. He creates sexes, not just gender, but sexes. It's important because it's getting confusing today. There's a distinction in sex. He doesn't say he made them man and woman. He made them male and female. Sexual beings with sexual anatomy to be expressed in a sexual way. And we see that ultimately, as we'll see in a few weeks, the ultimate expression of a male and female is to come together in marriage covenant for a lifetime to live out and express their male and femaleness in God's blessing. Back in August, Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey signed a bill. It was pretty shocking for those of us that believe in religious liberty. I'm not here to make a statement about Governor Chris Christie, but he signed a very weird bill. In New Jersey, here's what the bill says. It prohibits any licensed therapist from doing any type of gay therapy or gender therapy or any type of therapy that would prevent a person from wanting to change genders. So let me tell you how this would play out. For example, you're a Christian counselor in New Jersey, And a 10-year-old boy comes to see you. And the 10-year-old boy says, I like to wear makeup, I like to play with dolls, and I like to wear dresses. I want to be a girl. By law, you cannot do anything about that. You can't change them. You can't show them biblical truth. You have to basically just live with the fact that this bill has been signed into law. And so what is happening is parents are doing some amazing things to try to change. They can't change the sex of a child, can they? But they're trying to change the gender. So you've got boys that are anatomically boys that don't want to be boys, they want to be girls. So they can change their gender. So in California, depending on what gender you are, what you think you are, you can go into that bathroom. So if you are a girl, but you think you're a boy, you can go into the boy's bathroom, the boy's locker room. If you're a boy, but you think you're a girl, you can go into the girl's locker room. There's a lot of confusion in our world today. 
As a matter of fact, in the March edition of the New Yorker, there's a story about a 16-year-old girl. She did not want to be a girl anymore. So her parents allowed her to go under testosterone therapy, and they also allowed her to have a double mastectomy. And she dresses in boys' clothing, but she still wants to date boys as a girl who's been changed to a boy. Now, it's getting very confusing in our culture. We live in a world where there's a lot of confusion. And right from the very beginning of the Bible, God says he made them male and female. And as Christians, we need to have a worldview to understand that we live in a world of gender confusion. We live in a world of, of a lot of confusion. Ecclesiastes sums this up. Ecclesiastes 7.29. See this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. People were made upright. People were made in the image of God. But after the fall, people have wanted to try to get rebel against his authority. And I'm not trying to pick on gender issues here this morning or, or the issue of homosexual confusion or gender identity. I'm not necessarily picking on that, but I think it's, as, as Christians living in a world that doesn't understand these things, we need to be able to have answers. And I don't have time to show it, but you can go back and read Romans chapter 1 and find out what God says happens when you have confusion in these areas. And so let me just, let me just offer some help here this morning. We, we need to be very compassionate as God's people. I think sometimes we get accused of being in your face and rude and we need to show grace that God has shown us. But at the same time, love means that we show people that there's a better way in the gospel and we preach repentance. So I, I've told you this before, one of the biggest struggles we're going to have as Christians in the near, near future is how do you balance grace with truth? especially when it comes to this issue of gender confusion and all these identity issues. We've got to not back down on the truth, but we also have to be compassionate. And I'll be the first to stand up and say, I don't have it all figured out. As a matter of fact, yesterday at Sugar Beet Days, two, man, this is being recorded. I'll go ahead and say it. Um, yesterday at Sugar Beet Days, two lesbians that were very clear lesbians with their pride shirts holding hands, came up to our booth, and I was praying, what's going to happen? And they asked if we had water that was free, and I said, yes, take as much water as you want. Everything on the table is free. And they said, thank you, and they walked on. They didn't engage us, but I wanted us, at least in that moment, we're not going to bar them from having water. We're offering water to the entire community, so we're not going to be stingy and say, no, we're giving water to everybody in this community except for you two. We're singling you out. We, we weren't going to say that. We were giving water in Christ's name to anybody that was thirsty. Now, that's showing grace. Now, if they wanted to come and talk to me about some issues, I'm sure I would pull them aside and address some of those issues. And so how do you balance this? I think we need to be very wise as a church and as Christians that we stand up for the truth because we live in an age of gender confusion but we also need to show grace. And we've got to pray for wisdom on how to do that. Because we have parents that are voluntarily giving mastectomies to their daughters because their daughters want to be boys. We're having people mutilating their flesh because they don't understand how God's created them to be. And we live in a culture that's pushing them towards that and saying, that's okay. So we just need to be aware of this and say God has an answer from the very beginning. Here's the fourth issue. And this goes into chapter 2. What exactly is the meaning of God's resting on the Sabbath, the seventh day of creation? Was it because God got tired? God got worn out? And that fourth day was hard. 
I got to rest. He got to the sixth day and he's like, I am so tired. What is the, what's the purpose here? Here's what it is. God purposely takes the last day, the seventh day, to sit back and to enjoy what he had created. Do you notice what it says at the very end of, verse, of, of chapter, chapter 1, verse 31? God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was what? Very good. God saw what he created, and he said, this is very, very good. So it wasn't because God was tired. What he was doing is he was entering into a covenant relationship with his creation where he was going to enjoy what he made. And it's a prototype. Because later on, the fourth commandment and the ten commandments, he gives a a commandment saying we are to honor the Sabbath day. We are to set aside a day aside to enjoy God so that he can enjoy us. A Sabbath rest if you will. What's a Sabbath rest? It's a picture of completion. It's a picture of God completing something and saying it's very good. When Jesus died on the cross, what were some of the last words he quoted when he's hanging there? It is finished. In a sense, Jesus completed the work. And they put him in a grave and he rose again, and he's in heaven today offering a Sabbath rest to all who would come to him in repentance and faith. In the sense is, we don't work for our salvation because Christ worked for our salvation. We don't earn our salvation, Christ earned it for us. And so when we rest in Jesus and his finished work, we're taking a Sabbath rest in Christ. Christ is the Sabbath. He's the ultimate Sabbath rest that we rest in his finished work. And know what God can say now? Because of Christ's finished work on the cross and because of our relationship with Christ, God can look down upon you, his new creation, and say, very good. Let me enjoy you so that you can enjoy me. That's the essence of the gospel. The finished work of Christ allows us to have this relationship with God where he says, you are very good. Not because you're good. Not because you've earned it. Not because there's anything inherently good in you. It's because Christ finished the work for you and he offers this Sabbath rest. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is saying, come, if you're, if you're a sinner, if you're burdened by guilt, if you're burdened by shame, if you're, if you're a broken person because of your sin, come to me because I finished the work for you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to somehow pull yourself up by your bootstraps to get it. I've completed it for you. As a matter of fact, I cried out, it is finished. And I, I stand in heaven today as the ultimate Sabbath rest for you to offer rest for your souls. In Hebrews chapter 4, 9 through 10, The writer of Hebrews says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the Sabbath from the very beginning is not because God was tired. It's a prototype to say that God takes a day away and sanctifies it because it's complete and he enjoys what he created. And in the same way, Christ on the cross completed the work. He steps away because of his death, burial, and resurrection. He's alive in heaven, and he offers that rest for all who would come to him. So, as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating the finished work of Christ. His death on the cross 
for our sins. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we are picturing what? That he paid it all. Aren't you glad the hymn doesn't say, Jesus paid it half, all to him I owe. That would be really depressing, wouldn't it? Jesus paid it all. And he offers himself to all who would come to him this morning. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying to ourselves and we're preaching a, a message with the elements of the bread and the cup that Jesus paid it all. It is finished. He completed the work. It is done. But at the same time, are we in our true home yet? Are we in the new heavens and the new earth? So when we take the Lord's Supper, what are we picturing? We're anticipating what's to come. Aren't you so thankful that there's a marriage supper of the Lamb awaiting us? But we won't actually take the Lord's Supper symbolically. We'll be in the presence of the King taking His Supper with the finished work of Christ in front of us, Christ Himself. So as we take the Lord's Supper, we're, we're anticipating that day when we see Jesus face to face and we're in the Sabbath rest of heaven and we're in the new heavens and the new earth and all of our tears have been wiped away and all the pain is gone and there's no more sin and there's no more sorrow and we're there eternally with Christ at his table and he says, come and eat with me and I with you. And he can say to us, very good, because I've completed the work. Let me read to you Revelation chapter 19 as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to me the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Hallelujah for our Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. One of the things that I want us to do as we take the Lord's Supper is to, is to think about the fact that our God reigns, and He rules, and He's sovereign, and He's powerful, and He sent Jesus to complete the work and to be our Sabbath rest. That we don't have to work and earn our salvation. Jesus paid it all. It is finished, and when we come to Him, we can rest in His finished work for us. And as we take the Lord's Supper, we're looking forward to that day where we will be face to face with our Savior and He will say, come to the table and eat of my joy. Eat with me because I paid for you. And just like God looked at the seventh day or the six days of creation and stepped back and said it was very good, God looks at us and says, because of the blood of Christ covered for you, you, my people, the bride, very good. Let me enjoy you as you enjoy me, let's eat together the marriage supper of the Lamb because of the finished work of Christ and what he's done. So one of the things that we do when we take the Lord's Supper is we proclaim his death until he comes, but we also wait until the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we say, come Lord Jesus, quickly, so we can have that day. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. And maybe you've come in this place this morning and you have a lot of anxiety. Uh, why wouldn't you? And maybe you just need to come and in this, the quietness of this moment this morning, rest in the finished work of Christ. 
Rest in what he's done for you. Rest in his sovereignty. Rest in his power. Just rest. Do not strive. Do not work. Do not earn. Do not accomplish. But trust in the one who earned and accomplished for you. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim Jesus' death and we rest in his finished work. We rest in the Sabbath rest of Christ himself. So spend some time right now just preparing your hearts, quieting your hearts to worship the Lord this morning through the Lord's Supper. We come before you and we cry out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Thank you, Jesus, that you clothe us with the garments of righteousness so that we can be the bride that you called us to be. You've put on us the white wedding dress of your righteousness and you do not expect us to produce anything in our own merits. And so when we come before the Lord's table, we're not pleading our merits, we are pleading your merits. We're not looking at our accomplishments and what we offer, we're looking at our weakness and what we have not to offer. For Lord, all that we have to offer is sin and even our righteousness is as filthy rags before you. So we come and we receive grace from you this morning. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. It's, it's not magical. It's not where we receive salvation through it, but it's a means of grace where we're reminded of your grace in our lives. And when we take the bread and we take the cup and we ingest these into our body, we're reminding us that it's, it's beautiful to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. You are good. And your glory is Jesus. And you are wonderful. So this morning we want to bow before your glorious grace. And Lord, let us enjoy this time. Father, sometimes I think we don't think that you enjoy us. But Father, because of the finished work of Christ, you accept us. Not only do you accept us, but through Jesus you enjoy us. You shower us with love. You quiet us with your singing. You're our heavenly father, not a, not a strict judge, but a heavenly father. So maybe we just need to be reminded this morning of the, the blood of Christ that covers our sins and makes us acceptable to you, God. And you not only accept us, but you enjoy us. And Lord, we're not trying to make much of ourselves. We're not trying to elevate ourselves. We're just trying to rest in the beauty of the gospel that you accept your children based upon the finished work of Christ. So as we take the Lord's Supper, Lord, may we enjoy you and rejoice in you. I would ask those that are going to help this morning with our Lord's Supper.